Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. everyone and happy Monday to all of you. Thank you for joining me for this live teaching today. I'm Krista Von Traeger. I'm a Christian theologian and public apologist and this is a channel where I offer teaching about the Bible and theological commentary on social issues. I'm excited to bring you this new teaching today. I've entitled it How to Diagnose the Spiritual Health of Your Favorite Institution. Um, it is prompted really by a number of letters that we've received over the last few years at the ministry, kind of all focusing on the question of how do I know when it's time to leave my church or um, stop donating to a particular ministry or leave a ministry where I work because the progressive creep is really just too strong or how do I know when I should really try to stay and fight? Uh, I'm hoping to help you answer those questions, to share with you a little bit about how I have come to think about things of this nature. And I'm going to also weave in some strategies of what's needed in a Christian institution to try to help maintain the spiritual health and biblical fidelity but also how to turn around a progressive drifting institution, um, how to turn it around back toward more biblically faithful territory. And um, this is going to kind of build on an article that I wrote last year, a short article on my blog, outlining some practical steps that we recommend all Christian institutions take in order to prevent mission drift and I'm going to be sort of building on that today. Now, I realize <laughs> I'm talking about hiring issues. This might not seem like the most spiritual topic in the world, but my hope truly is that by the end, you will understand why this matters so much for each and every Christian who cares about biblical faithfulness. Um I also feel like I, I need to keep kind of revisiting this topic from time to time because there are very few voices out there talking about hiring issues. But yet I get a lot of letters from frustrated parents and donors and churchgoers who all have the same question. And that is, why is my favorite Christian ministry or church or Christian school not staying faithful? Why do I see them making these kinds of woke adjacent posts on their social media? Why are they promoting these more progressive leaning books? Why are they um, teaching my children these things? And so I'm hoping to help you connect some dots today in this conversation. And the structure of all this that I'm gonna to share today really stems from the many, many, many calls that Monique and I have with leaders of all kinds of churches and ministries and Christian schools 
they usually come to us because they want us to come in and do a training, maybe for their staff or their leadership team. But inevitably, I mean, these conversations start getting into the question of a larger conversation that we try to bring to their awareness that you don't really actually just need us for this training. You need to start, your leadership team needs to start asking some questions about what you are doing, both in terms of policies and hiring to prevent doctrinal drift. And this seems to be especially true for those institutions that have existed for about 30 years or so. Maybe they were started, they had an originator that they started with, and they've been around for two or three decades. Also true of um, multi-generational institutions, the ones that have been around you know, for 100 years or so. And the number one way that we see doctrinal drift happen at these Christian institutions is through indiscriminate hiring. And I did an entire podcast last summer with Dr. Gary Miller, a former provost at Biola University, and he shared his decades of biblical wisdom with us about strategies to hire biblically faithful staff. So you might want to check out that conversation after um, you listen to this one. But if if kind of the the hinge point to doctrinal drift is indiscriminate hiring, strategic hiring is the number one way to turn around an institution once doctrinal drift has set in. And so these kinds of policies and hiring are going to be important markers as you try to investigate the health of the institutions that you care about, the ones that you stay connected to, to, that you support, that you volunteer at, that you send your hard-earned dollars to, that you send your children to. Um, And we're going to try to walk you through all of that. So as Monique and I meet with leaders in Christian institutions, and again, when I use the term Christian institutions throughout this teaching, I'm really just using it as a shorthand way to refer to churches, ministries, and Christian schools. The patterns that we have noticed have become so predictable that we have developed four stages to diagnose um, where an institution is in its health, in its spiritual health in particular. And so think of these stages that I'm going to describe in this teaching as being somewhat similar to how maybe a doctor might use a tool to diagnose what stage of cancer somebody is. So we're going to think about the the decay as we go through the stages as kind of a spiritual cancer that can set in at Christian institutions. So here we go. Hopefully Bob's got some slides to show y'all. So stage one is to publicly affirm clear biblical positions. This is really where a lot of Christian churches and ministries start out. Most Christian entities, in the beginning at least, clearly state their positions. They have some kind of a statement of faith, for example, and that is a great start. Um, They 
the importance of a statement of faith, as I've said many times on this channel, is that it provides kind of a robust, hopefully it's robust, <laughs> summary of unifying key beliefs, key values, uh, mission statement that lie as a vital foundation for an institution's spiritual culture. This cannot be underestimated. Um, and so you want to go on their website. You want to look for these things. You want to see how robust is it? What are they willing to say if they're calling themselves a Christian ministry? What are they willing to say in public for everyone to see about their belief system and their mission and their vision and values? And how specific is it? If you're a donor, you can inquire about whether they require all their staff and all their board members to also sign off on their statement of faith. Um, some Christian institutions only require actually that their upper leadership hold to the statement of faith. Others require that everybody does. Um, does that include volunteers? That's another great question you can ask. You can also ask them, how often do you check in with employees or board members or volunteers to see if their personal views have shifted since they were hired? Now, this is a practice that very, very few institutions, Christian institutions do, the check-in. But I think this is a good step. And this is a step that I implemented um, in a previous program that I ran where we had participants who were functionally volunteers had to renew their commitment to both the statement of faith and the statement of conduct each and every year. And if they didn't renew that within some time frame, I think it was two years or three years, then we we made them inactive. Now we would invite them into a conversation with us. Hey, if you're going through some doctrinal changes, some transitions, maybe you're rethinking your position about a particular doctrinal issue, we wouldn't get rid of them right away, but we would begin to work with them and engage in a conversation with them. Hey, what books are you reading? How are you thinking this through? Where are you at in your journey? Because people do change over time and their positions change over time. So some people may come into a ministry and actually become more conservative in their theology. Other people come into a, a ministry and become more progressive over time. So I think that periodic check-ins are important for the health of the ministry. That said, very few churches, schools, or ministries have statements that address how the Christian worldview comes to bear on the big cultural questions of our day. And this is where we start kind of sifting out. We start this separation of that's going to become really important when we get into stages two to four. And that is, how are we vetting our potential employees, our current employees, when it comes to issues of controversy? Do they have a fairly well-integrated Christian worldview when it comes to those issues? And these topics, I think, should be addressed in the employee handbook, um, as well as in a statement, not just a statement of faith, 
when they come into employment at the church or school or ministry, but also a code of conduct. And that both of these statements uh, become part of the culture at, at the institution. So I think that it's important to have statements in the employee handbook on things such as biological evolution or common descent. And um, this is not to say we divide with people over the age of the earth per se, but for example, at the Center for Biblical Unity, we affirm a, a belief in a historical Adam and Eve. This we see as being an important part of the case for racial unity and racial equality, equality across ethnicities. So that's something that directly pertains to our ministry. A position about the dignity of life, including the pre-born, possibly even including the elderly. A definition of marriage, according to the Bible, a definition of sex and gender expression, discussion of how your institution will handle chronic habitual sins, particularly sins where the employee may not be in a posture of turning away from those sins. How will those things be dealt with? Things like drug abuse or marriage abandonment or porn addiction or homosexuality. These are issues that some institutions should probably have a statement on. Uh, there might need to be in some, depending on the type of ministry that you're in and who you're ministering to, some position statements in the employee handbook related to issues related to critical theory. There might need to be statements to the effect of where people stand on the critical social theories or on feminist theory and queer theory, including a summary of the incompatibility of these ideas with the Christian worldview. Um, sometimes it's appropriate for some of these issues to even be incorporated into the ministry's public statement on their institutional website. And this is why, for example, we have multiple pages on the Center for Biblical Unity website listing our position. We have our mission, vision, and values page. We have our statement of faith page. We have our um, position statements page. We've got a lot of pages on the website because we want our donors to know transparently where we stand and um, why we stand there, why we hold these positions. So again, we're in stage one. We're in, this is what a stage one healthy ministry looks like. Is they've got some positions, they've got some convictions, they're willing to state them publicly, they have them in their employee handbook. And when you inquire about them, there's transparency. This is shows you health. This is a sign of spiritual health. Now, obviously, it's not the only sign. I'm only looking at biblical fidelity. There could be other signs of decay on other issues, such as emotional health or whatever. I'm not talking about that today. But if you you inquire, if you're a donor, you're a parent, you're an employee at a ministry, and your institution has statements and you inquire about it and you find out that everything's in order, great, that's awesome. But you might inquire and say, hey, 
Um, I noticed we don't have a statement about homosexuality in our employee handbook, or I noticed that we don't um, necessarily have a statement. We're running a Christian school, but we don't really have a statement in the student handbook about gender expression. That might be kind of important. Um, so in a healthy stage one organization, when you go to leadership with that concern, they're going to be like, oh, wow, thank you for highlighting this blind spot. Yeah, maybe we should put a committee together. Maybe we should come up with something and, and uh, get proactive about that. So you're going to want to look to the public statements. If you're on the inside, look on the employee handbook, student handbook, and all of that. These are signs of spiritual faithfulness and stability, at least for now, because the truth is keeping an institution in stage one health requires vigilance and intentional policies. Most importantly, it requires courageous leadership. People who are actually willing to fire people. This is what I mean by courageous leadership. Leaders who are not willing, who are who are who are willing to put something publicly out there about their position, or are willing to put something in the employee handbook about their position. Even a board who's willing to fire a weak-minded president when needed. And I'm going to talk more about that in just a minute. So stage one again was the the institution is willing to publicly affirm clear biblical positions. Now we're getting to stage two. Stage two is institutions begin to practice silence about controversial issues in public. So the key word here is silence. They're not necessarily affirming controversial positions or denying controversial positions. They just become very quiet about them. So while an institution may still have a public statement of faith, it may be even a robust statement of faith. Thinking of a couple of institutions right now that I know of that have a robust statement of faith in public, but are in stage two behind closed doors. And they are silent about issues that they deem to be too controversial or too political. Those are usually the ways that they are described. And this usually means that there is no public statement on their website stating, stating their the institution's clear position on issues like abortion, marriage, gender, or other sexual perversions. And so they don't have it publicly out there. They might have a list of their affirmations of their statement of faith, but they don't have public clarity on these other, what they might call issues of that are too political or too controversial. And one of the signs that an institution is in stage two is that when you try to inquire about these kinds of controversial issues, you get responses from leaders that usually sound something like, well, let's just take abortion, for example. They'll say something like, well, abortion is a very nuanced issue. And so we don't want to talk about that publicly. Or talking about homosexuality in public might damage people. 
So we can't really offer a public statement about it, or we don't take political positions on homosexuality or gender expression or abortion or marriage. We don't want to use politically charged language in public. We don't use certain phraseology. We don't say either pro-abortion or pro-life. We're just neutral. We're silent, okay? Um, they'll say things like, it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat. We all affirm King Jesus. This is another common saying that I find from institutions that are in stage two. And I did a whole podcast about that last fall on election day. Um, it's called like three somethings about politics. I forget what it is. It's from uh, last election day, last fall. And uh, kind of breaking down this whole, it doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican, we just affirm King Jesus kind of philosophy. Um, so you can check that out if you want to. But this really is like the most common thing that you will hear when you try to inquire uh, at a Christian institution about like, well, it seems like you're silent on these issues or where do you stand on these particular controversial issues? Is you'll hear something like, well, we're not going to pick sides on this issue. This is an agree to disagree issue. We just want to focus on the mission and keep the main thing the main thing. When you hear phrases like this, in my experience, and I'm only speaking from my experience and talking to many, many leaders across denominations and across Christian institutions, this is usually coded language for we already have people in management who hold these positions, these more progressive-leaning positions, and we're not going to fire them. And so what they do, they the strategy here is that they just stay silent about them in public. And I think that many donors and even employees in these institutions that are in the stage two, they don't usually recognize how far the drift has already seeped into their church or school or ministry. They don't see it. They think everything's okay because everybody working here has a Christian testimony. Everybody working here is generally easy to get along with, okay? And from an outsider's perspective as the donor, you you look and you say, yeah, they pretty much are still on mission, okay? But this is where, you know, early detection, okay? If we're comparing it to a medical analogy, we need early detection. And when you start hearing coded language like, well, we're not going to pick sides. Abortion is an agree to disagree issue or we just want to focus on the mission or keep the main thing the main thing. Or you hear that about marriage. We don't want to take a position on traditional marriage because it's too political. It's too controversial. This is code for we already have hired people that have these positions, that have, hold these personal beliefs. We're not going to fire them. And so the decay has already started. Um, and... It's very likely when you hear these kinds of statements, that institution is already well into stage two. 
Now, another common feature of stage two institutions that I've noticed is that they are generally willing to take a very strong public stand against past sins. Now, racism is a particular favorite of, of this. And you will hear leaders of stage two Christian institutions say things like, we condemn all forms of racism. And they might even have a clear public statement on their website about that. But here's the problem with that, is that taking a stand against a past sin like racism requires almost no courage. Why? Because standing against racism is not that controversial. Nearly everybody already agrees about that. Um, my operating theory about this phenomenon of condemning sins of the past is, and, and taking a strong stand against things like racism, it gives the institution the appearance that they are remaining strong and going against the culture and remaining biblically faithful. And this will, it does have some effect in distracting donors, distracting parents, so that you don't notice their silence on current issues of controversy. And that is the key difference, okay? So institutions in stage two um, will be very hesitant about taking a stand on current issues. You didn't see them speaking out against BLM in 2020 in the heat of the moment. You didn't see them speaking out um, vigorously against abortion prior to the Roe decision. Maybe you didn't even hear, any, hear them say anything after the Roe decision. But institutions in stage two theoretically can still be turned around. And this is important um, because it almost never happens. It is so rare. Depending on how far the rot is and how far the decay has come into a stage two institution, it can be very difficult to turn it around. It's more, it's possible, but it's very hard. And here's why. Turning an organization around requires strong leadership. And you remember under stage one, I said, it's hard to maintain a stage one institution. Why? Because it needs courageous leaders. Well, the reason it's hard to turn around a stage two institution is because it's hard to find those courageous leaders. And you need to have leaders in place, particularly at the board level, who are willing to fire the president if needed. You also need a president or a vice president who are willing to fire multiple mid-level and top-level managers if needed, as well as implementing new hiring policies and a more robust statement of faith. This is what it takes to turn a stage two institution back to a stage one. You've got to be willing to part ways with some people. And if you do not have somebody in, in leadership who's, who can fire and has the authority to part ways with somebody who um, is a mid-level manager, top-level manager, um, has the authority and the backbone to change hiring policies and practices, you can't you can't turn it around. And so, if you're going to stay and fight, this is kind of 
the secret sauce to diagnosing, do I have the institutional position to stay in fight? If, am I an elder? Am I a vice president? Am I a top level manager? Am I impacting who's being hired? Then you might be able, it might be worth your time to stay in fight if you're at a stage two institution, okay? But again, this is, this is very, very rare. Now, if I worked at a Christian institution that I suspected was in stage two, but I really wanted to find out because I wasn't 100% sure. I wanted to, to maybe just be more sure. I would simply find an issue where the company seemed silent about it, like a big issue, like abortion or homosexuality or the radical trans agenda or traditional marriage or something, something that should be fairly straightforward and con non-controversial. And I would ask the leadership something like, should we consider amending our statement of faith to include a biblical definition for marriage? Or should we should we consider amending our student handbook to cover something like gender expression and just see what kind of response you get? You don't have to be combative. You could be polite. You could be respectful. I want you to be polite and respectful. But if when you ask a very simple question like that, and all you get is a bunch of answers that say things like, well, that would be very complicated, or that sounds too political, or that would offend a particular person at said institution who has kind of a mid-level, high-level managerial position, then you can be sure that the institution is already well entrenched in the stage two of its decay. Now, Another sign, other things you might hear are things like, and we've sat through so many meetings um, with things like this being said, is they'll give you kind of vague answers like, well, we'll look into this with no real specificity of timelines or how they're going to look into it. Is there going to be a committee? How can I get back to you? When can I get back to you? Um, or they'll say, well, that could never happen here because we have insert the name of some conservative person that everybody knows is a conservative who works at said institution. Um, that could never happen here because we have so-and-so. These are, we're going to have some real talk right now. These are scams. These are scams that ministries run on biblically minded donors and staff in order to keep everybody kind of settled keep the money flowing in, to keep the donations flowing in, and they'll swim in waters of generalities and dismiss questions about specificity. That's how you know you're in a stage two institution. Let me give another scenario of a stage two institution and why I think this is important. Let's say I'm a parent at a uh, of a student who goes to a Christian school, and I suspect or I wonder, is this Christian school that I'm spending $10,000 a year to send my kid to, is it in a stage two or is it a stage one? So I got to start digging. I got to start asking questions and I start suspecting more and more it's a stage two school. I'm going to probably look at taking my kid out as quickly as possible out of that school. I'm going to start making a plan to transfer them get them to another school, homeschool, do something. 
because here's why. I am not going to wait for that change to come to the institution. I can can try to maybe stay connected to the school and try to influence them, but I am not going to wait for change for my student because change will likely not happen fast enough to make it safe for my student from having a progressively minded teacher. If the school hasn't taken a strong stance in their employee handbook or in their public conversations with how they recruit students in their Christian school, they likely already have staff in place that have progressive beliefs. Um, And they more than likely are not going to fire that teacher. So hypothetical, let's say my student, my kid, discloses to said progressive-minded teacher that they are struggling with gender issues at a Christian school. I'm not talking about public schools. I'm not talking about government schools. That's a different issue. I'm talking about Christian schools, schools trying to fly under the banner of we are a Christian institution. So let's say my kid discloses to their progressively-minded teacher, I don't know they're progressively-minded, but that they're struggling with gender issues. What that particular teacher believes in that moment will directly affect how that teacher counsels my child. And if there is no policy in place in the employee handbook of what to do in that situation, that's like the wild, wild west. That is not safe for my kid. How is said teacher going to direct them? Will they affirm them? Will they direct them to talk to me as the parent? Will they direct them to an affirming counselor behind my back? I don't know. But in that split second, who that school hired really matters a lot and could have a lifelong impact on my child. And so that is why if I detect that my school is in a stage two level of decay, I am making a plan to remove my child as quickly as possible. All right, this brings us to stage three. We've covered most of it already. Stage three and four are going to go really quick. So stage three is the institution silently shifts positions and hides it from constituents. Now in stage two, all they're they're doing is just becoming silent about their positions they're still externally very conservative. They still have the majority of conservative people in their institution, but they're not wanting to take a public stand. Now, in this scenario in stage three, the institution itself is starting to shift quietly, but keeping it from constituents. And by constituents, I mean parents in a school, the donors, that sort of a thing. So if left uninterrupted, institutions will eventually drift just naturally into stage three. It's pretty much inevitable. It might take five to 10 years, but it it will eventually drift. And this, the typical scenario for how this happens that we have seen is that one or two key people get hired or promoted into upper management. So maybe the person came in in stage two and they were like a lower level person and they just kind of started working their way up or, and then simultaneously someone gets hired that has more progressive beliefs in an upper management position. And somehow these people always find each other. 
But this is how it happens. You only need a couple of people with ideological differences that are more progressive from the origins of the ministry or school. And um, they will start shifting the recruiting. These are individuals who have the power and the position um, to change how hiring is done. And it will begin to reflect more progressive values. And they will start hiring people who are pro-choice or socialist sympathetic or people who post pronouns in their bio or affirm side B homosexuality or who are secretly fully gay affirming. Uh, the institution might hire a diversity officer. They might start implementing policies uh, to tell employees not to discuss politics with each other. This is when you have arrived at a stage three level of decay. And again, this is all happening in the institution, kind of behind the scenes, but it's not yet projected to the constituents, to the outside, because usually at this stage, the constituents and the donors are still mostly conservative. They might have some progressives now trickling in, but they're still mostly that historic donor base, and they are still mostly conservative. And so they don't publicly announce these shifts. And so when donors start getting wind of rumors of things, the leadership will have a pattern of denying the shift because they need that money to keep flowing in from donors who are historically connected to the ministry. And even the top level people might be in denial that this is really happening. It, it could happen in an institution that's an older institution. Let's say it's you know, 40, 50 years old and the the first generation is aging and then the second generation of leadership is coming up. And there's a level of denial that we see happen time and time again where the older generation is still biblically solid and it, it passes by them how many progressive subordinates are floating around in, in the ministry or at the church at the lower levels. And this stage three is where a lot of our larger Christian institutions are. Think Christian higher ed. Think Sunday school curriculum, some Sunday, some, some, some Sunday school curriculum distributors, uh, Christian book publishing. But their donors, their customers, their patrons don't know it yet. They do not know all the ins and outs of the people that work there. So, you know, when you see somebody working at a major Christian institution and they're posting their pronouns in their Instagram bio, that could be based on a true story. Um, you know, this, this is a sign. This is a sign of kind of where we are at in the stages of decay. And institutions in stage three are basically usually almost always too far gone to be turned around. If you find yourself in a stage three institution, uh, it's usually best for the conservative-minded employees who are left and the supporters uh, who remain to abandon the institution and start a competitor. I've never seen a stage three institution turned around. If you know of one, put it in the chat or email me. Um, but I have not witnessed that.
Okay, this brings us to stage four. We have finally reached the stage where we are now going to be in public and we are going to celebrate sin. It is really only a matter of time before donors find out um, and before the institution fully affirms its positions in public and they just start telling donors, we're loving our neighbor, they'll fly anything under the banner of love for neighbor. And we should celebrate the courage of the people who affirm the opposite positions that we mentioned in stage one. And this is really where most mainstream church denominations are now, where we see drag queens giving the sermon and we see uh, the affirmation of transgender priests and all of this confusion. Stage four, this is affirmation. And you'll know that you're dealing with a Christian institution that is in stage four when you say things like, loving your neighbor means supporting their choice for abortion, or love is love, or we celebrate all genders, or God is queer. These are your signals that you have arrived at a stage four decay, and um, it is time to truly abandoned ship. It is the Titanic and it is going down. Um, so now what do you do? How do you, what do we do? What are some next steps? I always like to try to um, include some next steps in a teaching like this, because I don't want to just leave you in a place of like, well, great. You know, I'm at a stage two, I'm working at a stage two ministry. Now what do I do? All right, so I've already told you a few things to do, and now I'm going to give you a little bit more in the last fourth of this teaching. And if you want to, and I hope you do, you want to know what's happening with the institution where you send your hard-earned money, um, where you send your children, where you go to church, where you volunteer, I want you to think about how you can be proactive in digging around and seeing what's going on. Pull back the curtain a little bit. So first, actually what you need to do is first stop listening to what they are telling you. Just stop listening to what they're telling you. Stop listening to what the leaders are telling you, what they're saying in public, and start noticing what they're not telling you. Start noticing what topics they will not talk about in public. What topics do they label as too political, okay? What important issues in our cultural moment do you never hear them talk about? For example, when Roe was overturned, did they publicly say anything about that? Go search on their website. Do not assume that they said anything. Go look. Go check their social media. Go check their website. You might be surprised by their silence, in some cases, it's vital. Have they made clear statements against the radical trans agenda in public or in their handbooks? Again, go look. Don't assume. I cannot, I'm pleading with you. Please do not assume because the silence is really the difference maker. Second, ask more questions. If you work at a Christian institution and you notice that the leadership doesn't take a stand on tough cultural issues, especially when they're relevant, directly relevant to the ministry that you do, 
start asking more questions of your leadership. Now you're going to have to be courageous. Remember what I said earlier, courage is rare, but you will have to be courageous. You, you're going to have to start poking around. Well, what does it actually say in our website? What does our statement of faith say? What does our employee handbook say? How are potential employees screened for doctrinal fidelity? I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. What is the ministry's process for dealing with employees who hold to progressive Christian ideas? How often do we check in with our employees about how they're transitioning? Do we have a discipleship process in place to help those people who are in that transition? Now, if you don't even feel like you can have these conversations because you, you're something in you just intuitively kind of knows, I don't think this is going to be taken very well. I don't think the leadership's going to like these kind of questions. I might be a red flag. We'll call it a yellow flag for now until you investigate, until you get some, some data. But that, that would be concerning. If I just notice in myself, like, wow. I, I'm not even sure I can bring this up. I I think that people might be offended by being just asking the question. Uh, that's a definite sign that you're at least in a stage two uh, situation more than likely. If, if you work at a Christian institution or involved in hiring or on a pastoral search committee, then you are going to need to implement some strategic steps in the application process. You're going to have to go beyond just asking the applicant to share their personal testimony. And when we do trainings for schools, one of the things that inevitably comes up is people will say, you know, like, oh yeah, hiring Christians is one of the most important things we need to do um, in our institution. Great. How do you screen for that? And they'll say, well, we have them tell us their testimony in the, in the interview. Great. What else do you do? Usually nothing. In my experience, it is not uncommon for new employees to just go through the motions of signing a statement of faith without understanding and giving it careful consideration of the implications of what they're doing. We have to keep in mind, keep in context that we live in an age where doctrinal literacy is low. Barna and others have said, you know, Less than 10%, possibly like 2% of millennials have an integrated Christian worldview. Okay. But let's say that study's too pessimistic. Let's say it's 10%. Even that's very low. We, we must take some steps to preserve the biblical fidelity of our institutions. And for that reason, I advise Christian employers to assume, all right, so you've been asleep, wake up. When you are hiring someone, assume that the applicant probably does not understand the doctrinal implications of your, your institution's statement of faith. Assume that because that's what the numbers are telling us. So Barna and others are telling us. So assume that this employee, potential employee, does not know how to think about controversial cultural issues in light of the historic Christian worldview. So in order to preserve doctrinal fidelity at our institution, we're going to have to add some steps to the application interview process. So here's four ideas to help inspire your efforts. 
when you have the initial application process, include a question where applicants must state where they attend church and what level of service they participate in in that church. Then as part of your application review process, you can look, you can look up that church and kind of see where it falls on the spectrum of uh, doctrinal fidelity itself. This will tell you, give you an indication at least how this person is being discipled. Number two, as part of the application process, ask all applicants to write in their own words their understanding of your statement of faith line by line, line by line. So here's a line of our statement of faith, and then they have three or four blanks. They have to write a few sentences there to summarize their understanding of that previous statement. They're going to have to put some thought into it, okay? Number three is for candidates applying for leadership positions, include a requirement to list biblical support for each line of the statement of faith. It's very important. Can they do this? Now, obviously, <laughs> these steps are going to take the applicants a considerable amount of time, but they will also help unqualified candidates to self-select out because this takes effort. And as those candidates likely won't go through these laborious steps. So implementing these will give the hiring team a snapshot of how how motivated the candidate is and have they thought through the finer points of their Christian worldview. Number four is add strategic interview questions uh, that will bring the applicant's personal beliefs and potentially progressive beliefs out into the open. So here's a few questions for you to consider as um, interview questions. What books have you read recently? Can you tell me two or three that you've read recently? What did you find helpful about them? So, you know, if they're reading C.S. Lewis or, you know, I don't know, Wayne Grudem or some more conservative voices, that'll give you some level of data. If their favorite book right now is Jen Hatmaker, that's going to give you a different kind of data. How would you describe the Bible to a non-Christian? What is it exactly? It's a very important question. Is the Bible the error-free revelation of the creator of the universe? Or is it a travel log about spiritual experiences by ancient people? These will reveal and surface to different kinds of beliefs. How would you describe the gospel to a non-Christian? What difference does it make? It's a very different question than asking the person to share their personal testimony. You're seeing if they can competently share the gospel with a non-Christian and what is their understanding of it. Now, this one's a little more controversial, but there are an increasing number of churches that require you to know your Enneagram number. And if you don't, to take the Enneagram test and run through a battery of um of uh, trainings along that line. Some places will hire you because you have a certain Enneagram number and they need that number on their team, I think. Now, I'm not gonna go into my thoughts about the Enneagram, I have that on my website. I think that it uh, it is a occult, it has a cultic origin. I've researched all of that. I have all of those receipts on my website. I think it's not credible, okay? Um, but you could ask an applicant 
What do you know your Enneagram number? What are your thoughts about the Enneagram? That could be interesting. That could be a very interesting conversation, whether they're for it or against it. Just listen, just take in the data. Um, can you describe a time when you had to forgive a coworker? This is a revelatory question I've used in many interviews. And it really gives you a feel for the person's Christian maturity and character uh, in how they describe the situation. Powerful question. Now, the point here is not to trap applicants. It's to ask clarifying questions. It's a legitimate part of data collection during a hiring process, just as you check references or do a background check. As long as you do it equally to everyone, it's fair. And it helps to surface what's already there uh, to see if it's really, this person's really going to be a good fit for your ministry. Um, and it might come out that applicants are very ignorant about certain issues or very passionate about certain issues. Again, all of that is data. And um, in my practice, as I have asked many of these questions in interviews, I found that asking these kinds of questions helps to set proper expectations with applicants, and it often has a self-selecting out effect. But again, this takes courage. This takes courage. It takes time. It takes intentionality. And it's not going to just settle for breathing people <laughs> to come in. We're going to just have breathing people with testimonies. So fairly low level of a bar for things. And this is how in Christian institutions get watered down over time. Institutions are only as faithful to their mission as the people who work there who carry the mission forward. And in this day and age, carrying forward that mission takes courage. I think that most of our legacy institutions are already well into stage two. Many are in stage three uh, that uh, people just don't know it yet. Donors don't know it yet. But wherever you send your money to your local church, your kids' Christian school, your favorite ministry, I really want to encourage you. Now is the time to start pulling back the curtain on the, their spiritual health. It might trouble you. It might shock you. It might surprise you. It might encourage you. But be courageous, go talk to the leaders, and remember um, that you know being cowardly is not a Christian virtue. In fact, there's a very hard word in the scriptures that God lumps cowards in with some pretty bad sins of murderers and sexually immoral and sorcerers, idolaters, liars in Revelation 21 verse 8, and cowards are in there. So... We must be courageous. We must be strong if we want our Christian institutions to be preserved and to flourish. And I know that's probably a hard word, but we need more courageous leaders. We need more courageous Christians who are willing to ask hard questions and in interviews and to the leaders themselves and to part ways with people who do not hold personal beliefs that are consistent with the mission. All right, friends, I hope you will um, share this podcast with a friend, particularly your pastor, a school, Christian school administrator, an elder in your church, a leader in ministry. And um, I hope that you have found this helpful. Make sure to check out my blog. I have another blog along these lines coming out soon. 
and um, hiring. I know it's not really like a super, I'm not going to get a lot of clicks on this podcast, but this is some really important stuff. And um, I, if more people followed, you know, this advice uh, and had these conversations, we wouldn't be in such jeopardy in so many of our institutions. With that, I want to thank you for watching today. Uh, good afternoon and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening.